0: Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 22. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed that they, what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. The word of the Lord.
1: Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you please just bless our time together in your word. Would you speak, uh, would your Holy Spirit speak through just our time together as a church body. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen. I, I thought that was a very friendly reading, Andy, of a very like terrifying text. <laughs> I was like, I don't think the, the demon was like as, as nice and as kind as Andy's voice uh, was. So, I think this passage comes down to one thing. Well, there's a lot of things to it, but I think it comes down to kind of one big theme that I want to focus on, and that's the theme of power. And I think we actually see a lot about power in Acts chapter 19, because we're going to be talking about like religious power this week, right? like supernatural power. Next week, we're going to talk, well, not next week, but after Easter, talk about economic power. Because we see kind of the two kind of work together religious power, economic power, they, they converge in this messy mix at Ephesus. And both are transformed and overcome by the power of Jesus. And so today, we're going to look at this very fascinating, very creepy story, The Seven Sons of Sceva. Before we do that, I want to tell a brief story. Uh, So uh, I am not super familiar with kind of parliament Politics in Great Britain, uh, but uh, someone known as N.T. Wright, maybe some of you are familiar with N.T. Wright, uh, the great uh, British theologian. Well, well, he tells the story of George Brown. Has anyone here heard of George Brown? Okay, good. Uh, So this is super relevant. Apparently, when he was young, so this is uh, a famous guy who became kind of famous in in politics and political life and, and British society. Uh, But when he was young, he he realized things needed to change, that society was a mess, and something had to be done about it. And so he said, ah, I will join politics. (laughs) I will get into it. So he got into politics, and he got elected to a council. But then he discovered, I don't think I actually have much power here. I can't produce much change. There was no real power. Things are decided elsewhere. And so he went from the council to parliament, Like, I'll run for parliament, got elected to parliament. Looked around, realized, there's no real power here. I'm not really able to affect that much change. They could talk, they could vote, same things just seemed to stay as they were. So he got even higher to the place of the top three to be deputy prime minister under Harold Wilson. Anyone heard of Harold Wilson? Okay. One head's nodding. Alan, Alan knows. But still, when he got there, realized there's no power here. <laughs> we're just doing things that are just kind of coming along. People were doing things that just kind of came to them as opposed to orchestrating change. And so at the end of it all, he was kind of disillusioned. Where is the power? One author defines power as the ability to make something of the world. I like that. The ability to make something of the world. That means we all have some power, right? I have power to make changes in my home. Uh, maybe in my, my job. Uh, you know, I have one level of power. My, my son has another level of power. Right? You know, he has the ability to break out his Legos make a tunnel, drive a train through it. He has power to make something of his world. But when we ask kind of at a wider like society level, where do we see the power? Do we see it on Wall Street, in big banks? Do diamond hands hold all the power? GameStop. <laughs> Mark's laughing. There's a couple of you if you know what the GameStop thing is. And so how do we get it? How do we take control? How do, how do we have this ability to make something of our lives? And like I said, Acts 19 is all about power. It's about using religious power to make something of our world. So religious power uses religion <laughs> to control, to meld, to shape. You can use things like preaching a sermon. Uh-oh. Kind of the liturgy of the church, things we do. How about the kind of the the spiritual control? You can also use uh, like interacting with the supernatural as a way to control the world. Spirits, talking to them, hearing from them. So I'm not talking about just a church. I'm talking about any sort of religious activity: Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and so. Religious power can be very tempting, but here's the problem with religious power. Religious power values control over the world. And we find this as we arrive at Ephesus. Because Ephesus is a place of supernatural religious power. Now, Ephesus had a population of about 250,000 people. You can now see uh, see where Ephesus is on the map, right? Mediterranean Sea, Cyprus, Jerusalem's down here. Had a population of about 250,000 people, a quarter million residents. There is power in numbers. There's a trade port that flourishes there. It's an economic powerhouse. And something that really brings the, the community together, that unites them, Is this temple, the Temple of Artemis? Now, this is a model because the Temple of Artemis is no longer there. That would be amazing if it was. Uh, But it's not there anymore. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is what we think it probably looked like. And inside was this giant statue of Artemis that the people worshiped and that they believed fell from heaven. This temple functioned as a place of sacrifice, a place of worship, even a bank. I think, if I, if I have my, like, temples right, you could, like, go and sacrifice uh, to the God, eat some of the meat, and then they would take the meat and sell it at the market. All right, so that's where you get some of these, Old Test- uh, these New Testament passages about being careful about what you eat and being thoughtful about that. So it's, it's like a restaurant, too. <laughs> Your your restaurant bank. You ever go to TD Bank to get a a good burger? Well, this is the temple of Artemis. Artemis was said to have power over fertility, reproductive power, childbirth, uh, like mothering animals, wildlife. Like a lot of things were said to be under her control, under her domain. Now, as Christians and as we look at the Bible we recognize that there was probably real power behind this place of worship. That, uh, that spirits, evil spirits, demonic spirits, probably did interact through this temple. And so when you went there and you paid a sacrifice or you gave money and you asked Artemis to bless your childbirth or your, your crops, things probably happened. Real things probably happened. And so this is a place of supernatural, real power. Now, as I was thinking about my own life, kind of wondering, like, okay, so, obviously, a, a, this is different than a church. Where's a place that I might see this? And my, my knowledge is limited, but, I, I, you know, so, you might not know this, but I do CrossFit. And uh, in my CrossFit kind of complex, there used to be, Uh, like a Hindu temple where you could come and you could uh, offer sacrifices and I don't think, like, like fruits and stuff like that. You could give offerings. Uh, And occasionally, sometimes when I was running around the outside of the building, because in CrossFit they run, uh, we would run by um, people as they'd be out by their cars. And we'd see, like, a little offering on their car of fruit and flowers and maybe nuts or something. But clearly they were trying to, like, bless the car. Uh... make it it run well or make it last. You saw some sort of interesting power dynamic, right, where uh, that was a good point, thank you, Evangeline. Uh, You see some sort of power dynamic, right, where I come and I give my offering and then I receive something in return. And I exert kind of control over my life. And it's easy to kind of fall into this temptation, isn't it? Because I I don't want to just be the you know talk bad about other religions. I want to think about our own faith, right? About Christianity. Do we ever do this where we use our faith as a way to gain control over the world? Maybe you've heard that song. Maybe you've sung it and now I'm going to ruin it for you. But Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands. I kind of like that song. Carrie Underwood did a nice job with the song. But I doubt it would be as popular if it was like a nice sunny day in that song, right? Because the whole thing is like it's storming and life's storming and I lose control. And so I need Jesus to come and kind of take control of the wheel. That's all true, right? And God often uses those moments when we're in our brokenness to help us see that we really don't have control of our lives. And I think that's where the song's heading. But I guess my point is not, don't listen to that song, it's a fine song. <laughs> my point is, let's give Jesus control of our lives, even on the nice sunny days, when it's not storming. So that we don't, I mean, maybe we'll get to that point where we lose like control of the wheel. But what if we just give Jesus the, the wheel from the beginning? <laughs> and don't wait until like we're skidding off the road. So we're not supposed to approach religion, God, and Jesus to try to gain control of our lives. We're supposed to approach him trying to know who he is and experience his grace in our lives, just, just experience him. It's interesting that when Paul arrives at Ephesus, we didn't read it today, but he, he finds it to be like a, a, quite a, a powerless place. If we had read just before this, we would have seen how Paul arrived and like the, the 12 kind of disciples they did have of Jesus, these men that were kind of like the leaders, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that was because they were kind of caught up in syncretism, right? Syncretism is where you're kind of caught up in the, the local, um, uh, just like cult religions or some other situation, but clearly, this is a church needed to. They, as a church, needed to experience the power of God—the real transforming power—and that's what we see happens. So Jesus comes along, and His power transforms people's lives. His power rests control, it takes the wheel, takes the driver's seat, takes the whole car, takes the driver. And that's what Jesus' power does. He comes in and he transforms. Their lives Verse 10 says that Paul, he was there for two years, and as he was like, like preaching, like people heard, it says that all the people in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Something is transforming this church, these believers and this very culture. And it's God's presence. It's not religion. <laughs> it's God. And God actually does it in a very mysterious way that we would probably frown upon today as a church. Acts 19:11 through 12 says this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched His skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is interesting) <laughs> So that, like, does that mean we can, like, pray over, like, Mark's game Gamecock's jacket and take it, <laughs> and they'll be healed? Maybe. I don't think that's what we're supposed to take away, right? Just because we see something in Acts doesn't mean we're supposed to kind of follow that pattern. Maybe you're familiar with the concepts of, like, church relics. You Ever heard of a church relic, or you've been to a museum or a, a church, and you've seen a a relic, right, which are like these, sometimes they're parchment, sometimes they're like bones, they're like hair, right, and, and they're so supposed to kind of have like this healing power. Well, there's a lot of like, quite frankly, like deceit around these things, like a big black market. I don't, I don't think we're supposed to say, okay, and now let's set up like a, a, a relic department at Cornerstone. We'll have the worship ministry team and we'll have the, the relic ministry team. I don't think we're supposed to do that. But we can't look at other places in the Bible. And remember how, like, there was this woman who was suffering from bleeding for, like, uh, uh, over a decade, and she comes to Jesus, and she, what does she do? She touches his garment, and she she's healed. And said, so Jesus turned to her and seen her. He said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So it's not that, like, Jesus' cloak has the power, it's that, Like, God is working through the faith, right? The faith of this woman to even touch the cloak of Jesus. She's still kind of coming to him. She sees that the power is in him. And that's what we need to do. We need to see that the power is in Jesus. And in this passage where, like, they take, uh, you know, garments from Paul, I I don't know why God did it this way, but I I think essentially God's, like, condescending, right? Uh, The word condescension is a bad word, in our, our language, we think of like, oh, you're being condescending to me. That means you're talking down to me. But actually, when God condescends to us, it's like he's, he's, he's lowering himself to our level so that he can communicate better with us. So like when my daughter is on the floor crawling around, I can get on my hands and knees. I can get down on the floor and just kind of relate to her at her level Instead of her having I mean, to always like crank her head. And then I discover things about her, right? Like she like like there's like this line of dirt underneath our, our dishwashing machine. I'm like, oh, that's great. You're crawling around in that. I should probably clean that. Right? I think God is essentially condescending. He's 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 making himself known in this the city of Ephesus in a way that the inhabitants can understand. I don't think God's gonna leave them there, but I think that's the starting point, right? To speak at a level that these people would have understood. They would have understood things like magical amulets and and, uh, magical things. When they heard, oh, there's this stuff that's so powerful that it's just connected to this person who's preaching about Jesus, they would have paid attention. It's like God's getting their attention and he's he's bringing them in. I've been reading this book, uh, I've been reading it for a while, but uh, I got back into it. It's called The Death of a Guru. And I'm, you know, I'm sharing a lot of things about kind of Hinduism today, just because I've been learning about it, but also just I don't know if you have a coworker or friend that is uh, Hindu, this might help you pray for them or have conversations with them. You could even pick up this book, uh, but it's about this guy named Rabbi or, or Rabbi. I'm not exactly sure how he said it, but he's this uh, Indian Hindu guru. He's a yogi. He's someone who has. Great power, and his father was this uh, very uh, powerful yogi that people would come to and worship and give offerings to. Uh, and he dies in the story, but then Robbie, uh, he he kind of takes after the path of his father, and he finds a lot of power there. He's, he goes on these meditative journeys where he like astro projects and and talks to spirits. It's it's amazing. It's creepy. Uh But he finds that there's no peace there, that it's real, that there are spirits, but there's no peace, that these spirits that he interacts with, these gods that he worships, they're always angry, they're always angry with him, and he can never feel like he pleases them. And then one day, I think this is an illustration of God's condescension, condescension to him, one day he's walking through nature, walking through the woods, and a cobra slithers up behind him. It's going to kill him. And he turns around and he sees this cobra that's like about to strike him and it looks exactly like uh, one of the cobras that hangs on the neck of one of the gods that he worships, the god Shiva. And It's hissing at him. It's about to kill him. And out of nowhere, he remembers this. He says, he remembers this thing that his mom once told him. She said, Rabbi, if, R- Rabbi, if, you ever, if you're ever in real danger and nothing else seems to work, There's another God you can pray to. His name is Jesus. Jesus, help me! I tried to yell, but the desperate cry was choked and hardly audible. To my utter astonishment, the snake dropped its head to the ground, turned clumsily around, and wriggled off at a great rate into the underbrush. God just kind of condescended into his world through Christ Jesus. Later, he had, like, his appendix uh, almost burst, and he was in, he had a surgery, and then he was trying to walk to the bathroom, and he nearly fainted, and he put out his hand, and someone caught his hand. And there was no one in the room. (laughs) Uh, It's pretty amazing. And he was calling out for Jesus then, as well. Someone left a Christian tract, and Yet even all these things don't wrest control of his life from him. He still kind of clings to his yogi powers. And I'll return to this story in a little bit. But maybe you're like Robbie. Maybe, I'm going to take a leap, maybe sometimes you come to church, uh, whatever religious place you're normally aware of, and you just kind of approach it as like, hey, I'm going to go here so that God's going to bless me, so that I'm going to have a good life but I'll have control over those things that I don't normally have control over. Maybe some of you have even tried occult practices. You've tried the crystals, the amethyst, the talking with uh, people that can tell the future or read a, a tea leaf. Those things don't lead to true and eternal power. They actually lead away from God. So religious power tries to give us control over the world, but Jesus wants to come into our lives and transform our lives from the inside out. See, religious power, it uses Jesus as a means to an end, or any God, not just Jesus, but any God. And we see this in Ephesus. Now we come to the the fascinating story of the seven sons of Sceva. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, so I guess these were people that traveled around casting out demons, so they had some power, clearly, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. So they hear, oh, there's this Paul who seems to have a lot of power. I'm going to mention his name or the God he worships, Jesus, and that'll kind of cast these demons out. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. (laughs) And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And then the evil spirit leaps on them, masters them, overpowers them, strips them naked, bruises them, and sends them fleeing. They had a really bad day. See, somehow they realized, like, Oh, we have this power. Somehow we're able to get demons out. And there's like this mixing of maybe their Jewish faith and maybe like the local religions at Ephesus because we don't really know who this high priest named Sceva is. Clearly it's not the Sceva at the, the temple in Jerusalem. Like, We got power. We can use this power to accomplish what we want, to accomplish what we want in life. Where does that lead It leads to shame. It leads to disappointment, and that's how if we approach Jesus as just like a means to an end to get what we really want, right? And I'll I'll confess, like I can, I I can do this. Usually, when I'm preparing for my sermon, I say, "Lord, would would it be a good sermon? (laughs) Would it be a really good sermon?" And I was just praying that this, and I was like, "Oh man, I gotta stop praying that." Like Jesus would, like we know you. (laughs) Would I know you? Would your people know you through this sermon? right now that's like me but how about you what about your life jesus would this be a good presentation at work <laughs> jesus would i have a good review jesus would my son or my daughter would they obey me jesus would i get a good grade <laughs> jesus would i get over this sickness i don't think those things are bad things to pray for i don't even think they're wrong but maybe first we could pray, Jesus, would I know you in my school? Would I know you and experience your grace in my work presentation today? Would I know you in this sickness? Would I experience you and your presence in whatever I'm going through? Because I just want to know you. <laughs> and it would be nice if you'd like take care of the grades too. But we'll leave that in your hands. We don't want to just use Jesus as a means to it. And Jesus is not a cosmic vending machine, right, where you just plug in the prayer or the Bible verse and then, like, out pops the answer. That's not Jesus. That's a vending machine. (laughs) Jesus' power transforms darkness into light. Look what Jesus does for the church and for the entire community. Verses 17 through 20 say this. And this became known. So this like crazy event with the seven sons of Sceva became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So not Paul, not like those Christians, but Jesus was extolled. The name of Jesus. They're like, man, that name has real and significant Power. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. It leads to repentance. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So when this community hears about, like, the real power of Jesus, it just transforms The community. I I saw like various numbers. I'd read one comment here and be like, This is in today's dollar how much they burnt up. And another one would have a completely different number. The one I thought perhaps made the most sense was that it would require over 150 people working a full year to equal the financial value of these scrolls, right? 150 people, salaries. It's like a pretty good sized business here in Massachusetts working for a full year to pay for the value of these scrolls. You know, that's great that you know Jesus is is transformed, but like man, isn't that a missed opportunity? Couldn't they have taken all those scrolls and sold them and taken all that money and financed 150 missionaries for a full year? Right? Couldn't they have couldn't they have just like, like man, they could have funded Paul and and Timothy and Titus and like the entire church See, Jesus isn't just interested in making things work. (laughs) Jesus is interested in transformation of a people, a place, and the powers that reside there. That's what Jesus wants to do for us. He wants us to encounter him. There's another story in the Bible of a man encountering a demon, casting out that demon. <laughs> Remember when Jesus arrived at the other side of, I think it was Gennesaret, a Gentile territory, and he encountered a man in the tombs, legion, he's naked, he's filthy, he has a thousand demons dwelling in his body. The people have tried to chain him, to bind him, and the demons just empower him to break free. It's like the reverse of today's story. So we see what the demonic does. We see what religious supernatural powers do. It strips you naked, and it sends you fleeing. What does Jesus do? Casts out the demons. They clothe him. find him in his right mind, they restore him. Jesus restores him and sends him home. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to do in our lives, as a church community. However, you have been using religion or running from God, Jesus wants to cast out your demons, to heal you to clothe you to give you a home so the question is do you want that do you want that do you want him that's where it begins do you want Jesus the story of this rabbi the yoga it's an amazing story because he doesn't want Jesus at first it takes time it takes kind of coming to the end of himself right it takes that dark and icy road that i made a joke about earlier but one day begins to sense that you know what it's not right what i've been doing is not right and i need a change and then that's when god just brings this one of his classmates into his life and she just like sits him down and tells him about jesus she just comes over to tell him about christ He's angry, and he's, like, arguing with her. But then on the inside, God is doing something. God is transforming his darkness into light. God is transforming his life. And she, she, as she's leaving, she just says, you know, Robbie, just pray that, like, God would reveal himself to you. And he will. Ask God to show you the truth. And a little, a little while later, he ends up going to his very first church service. And it's like the exact opposite of what he's, he's been experiencing, right? He's been experiencing money and, and worship, and he comes to like this little like house that the roof has bats in it, and it's like you can see the sky, and it's just a dump. But there's believers in there, and they're singing, and they're worshiping. He's struck by the music. Before the, the, the guy even gets up and preaches, he's just struck by the music. And then Jesus transforms his life. Takes all of his little idols out and just burns them. And that's where I'm at in the book, so I don't know what happens next. That's his story. I've told you a little bit of my story. What's your story? And how is Jesus going to transform it? I think he is. I'm excited to see what he does. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, for you. For you. Would we know you? Would we hear your voice? Would we experience your grace and your presence in our lives? And would we want you? (laughs) Would we not just want all like the sweet trequents and things you can give us, but would we want you and experience you and every? Heart of our life. We need you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.